I'm going to uh, play for you. I have two parts to Nick Records' interview, and he does the EcoCats, which we've played on the show before. Um, but I finally got him pinned down. He's a very busy man um, at Bigelow to do an interview about his EcoCats and some stories about, like, um, where he gets his data from, how these systems work, and um, what he kind of hopes they can bring to the public in the future. My name is Nick Record. I am a senior scientist at Bigelow Laboratory for Ocean Sciences, and I'm basically the resident math geek. I do ecosystem modeling, which is a lot of math and computer science, and occasionally I still get to go out on boats. <laughs> Have you always done mostly math? Yeah, I was a huge math geek ever since I was a little kid. I really liked math and was good at it. But eventually I decided that I didn't just want to be stuck in an office doing math all day. And that was when I when I shifted into ocean science. And luckily, ocean sciences is a, a field where they're, they really like people who are good at math. And there's lots for me to do, especially with ecosystem science. I understand you do math. And so a lot of that math is often called modeling, right? Yes. So what what is modeling? Because there's so many different interpretations of what that means. So, Yeah, that's actually why I say math. I'm a math geek instead of a modeling geek, because modeling means something different to almost everybody. The, the kind of modeling that I do is, is basically figuring out how the ecosystem works. It's like bringing in data from satellites, from measurements in the field, bringing in equations from theory about how ecosystems work and kind of putting it all together. But I could be working on anything from viruses to whales and the models could be as simple as plotting X against Y or they could be these really complex three-dimensional fluids moving around through space and time, carrying organisms that are eating each other in this really elaborate sim- simulation. But, but modeling in general means anything to anyone. It's one of those words that is just really hard to to use and define because people just use it however they want. So what are some examples of these very different kinds of models? The main difference that I deal with is statistical models versus mechanistic models. In a mechanistic model, you're trying to put in the equations for all the processes that you think are important, like the physics of ocean fluids and the rate at which uh, species X eats species Y and all these different things that you know are happening and people have measured in the lab or in the field and you try to build a simulation. And then the statistical models are, let's just collect a bunch of data and see what's related to each other. And those are really useful too. And oftentimes people will use both of those models on the same question and come up with really different answers. Right. And so you have these nice healthy debates that, uh, (laughs) (laughs) that define science and egos and all that stuff. So that actually brings me to my next question is we've featured your EcoCast on our podcast before. Yes, thank you for featuring that. <laughs> well, it's great, right? And so I'm wondering what kind of modeling goes into those EcoCasts? So the EcoCast, it's, it's based a lot on weather forecasting. Weather forecasts are one of the models that, that most people get. People are familiar with weather forecasts. They look at them every day. They're an integral part of the way we plan our lives. Even if they're sometimes wrong, uh, they're still actually mostly right. And we can complain about them, but they do a really good job. If you don't like the weather forecast, you should try uh, living your life based on the farmer's almanac. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but those are models. People understand how to digest that information. And so my thought was 
to try to apply that same sort of concept to ecology. Can we forecast ecology on a daily time scale in a way that's useful to people? And so I've sort of picked uh, different species and different ideas and problems in ecology that I think would be really useful for people to have forecasts of. One of one example is the tick cast, the yeah. daily deer tick forecast, because deer ticks are a big problem now in the Northeast because of Lyme disease and all the other sort of terrifying diseases that they carry. And wouldn't it be nice to know if today is a uh, bad tick day if I'm going out to work in the garden? I actually started that one because my kids were getting ticks all over them uh, at certain times of year and just wanted to know, like, when do I need to worry about ticks the most? So it's um, so I started, and I do other species too, like I do jellyfish. Uh, I've done right whales in the past, which is a really endangered species of, ra- of whale that feeds in the Gulf of Maine working on some harmful algal bloom forecasts for aquaculture and, and a variety. We're working on one now that's a forecast of moose-car interactions, a sort of interaction that you want to avoid, and, and deer-car interactions. Yeah. Just playing with the data now. But you can imagine if all these were in one place and you just wanted to go and get kind of like the forecast for everything that's happening in Maine or outside of wherever you live, and you, there are all these things that you could look at if I'm driving from here to to uh, New Hampshire and I want to know what's the best time of day or what's the best route to take to avoid running into a deer. That could be useful if I want to go to the beach and I'm worried about jellyfish. It would just be useful to be, be able to look at all this stuff. And so in that way, it's really similar to weather forecasts. The way that it's different is that our way of collecting data on all of these different animals is different than when the way we collect weather data. For weather data, you can just throw up a weather sensor. Uh, in fact, Weather Underground bases a lot of their forecasts just on people's personal weather stations. Mm-hmm. People, volunteers just put them up at their house, stream the data, and a lot of that goes into the weather forecasts. For something like ticks, you can't just put out a, a weather station and measure ticks, deers running into cars, or vice versa, jellyfish, and all these other things we want to forecast. And it's really time-consuming and expensive to get quality measurements of all these things. So what I've done is to turn to citizen reports. So it's kind of like citizen science. There are all these citizen science projects going on right now. Maine is well known for having a strong tradition of citizen science, and I think it's because so much of our lives and our livelihoods are tied to the natural environment. Uh, Like right now, for example, uh, you know, 30% of the state is still out of power after day three of the storm. And and people in Maine are equipped to deal with that. Uh, many of us have wood stoves and we cut our right. own wood and so on. And, um, you know, lots of people grow their own vegetables and lots of people are just more used, more accustomed to interacting, I think, with the natural world than a lot of other places are. And part of that has fed this really strong citizen science tradition that we have here. And there are all kinds of citizen science projects going on. So when I, when I open this up to get reports from people... People were complaining about jellyfish. That's how I started it. And I was like, well, let's just, let's just see if people will send me jellyfish reports. And in the first summer that I did this, I just got hundreds and hundreds of reports. Yeah. People, you know, on the beach seeing jellyfish want to know what's going on, and they'll send me their sighting information. They'll send me photographs, um, date and time, location, basically all the stuff that I need to feed the model. So that for, the, for these forecasting models, mm-hmm. we can't use the approach that weather forecasting, forecasters use because weather forecasters are using 
basically atmospheric physics, and we right. know the equations that describe atmospheric physics. We've known them for a long, long time. We don't know the equations that describe ecology. And so I have to lean more on statistical models, and I use machine learning. Machine learning is a field of computer science that gives computers the ability to learn without being explicitly programmed. Nick explains a bit more. And there's a really wide range from neural networks, which are designed to, to look like the human brain, actually, uh, to, to much simpler approaches where data is just kind of plotted, you look for a relationship, and as new data comes in, that relationship can change. And so the algorithm learns in that way. So there's a really, uh, really wide spectrum of machine learning methods. And I like tinkering with all of those. But yeah, the basic idea is that the algorithm can learn as new data comes in. And the other side of that is that the, the data are a variable quality control. Mm. When you collect weather data or envir most environmental data, there are quality control protocols that you use to make sure it's good data. Well, the reports that I get are really varied and interesting in lots of different ways. I mean, sometimes it'll just be like shirtless men holding blobs of jelly, which is amusing. Some people will send me... Some people will call me on the phone or send me glossy photos of the jellyfish that they saw. Some people tell these really interesting stories, too. They won't just email me that they saw a jellyfish, but they'll tell me the whole history of, I've been fishing off this dock for 40 years. Here are all the things I've seen in that time. And this is really unusual, and here's why. And I think that's, uh, I think that's an untapped source of, of knowledge yeah. In Maine and probably elsewhere, too. But we have so many people here who have been observing the natural world for such a long time and have these observations and figuring out how to how to extract that knowledge from people is... Uh, and people, people have done studies like that before. I think of Ted Ames' yeah. uh, paper on cod. Where it's usually focused on of, fishing. Right. It's usually focused on fishing. If you think about it in terms of an ecosystem, it's much more complex, but there's a lot more... There's a lot more observations out there. There's, it's not just fishermen. It's everyone who's been observing things uh, for a long time. When somebody says, I saw a big blob in Old Man's Cove last Tuesday, that's a different level of quality <laughs> control than most scientists are used to working with. Right. And so a lot of the, the newer kind of big data analysis methods that are sort of an outgrowth of statistical modeling but, but use things like machine learning and um, new computational techniques – there are some new algorithms that people have developed for working with variable quality control data. And it's still an open area of development, and I'm working on developing those algorithms too. That's where the math and computer science geek in me comes out, um, how to develop the right algorithm to work with this, this data set where we have a lot of data, but of really, often really poor quality. But if you have enough, that quantity of data can make up for the quality, and you can, you can figure out how to still make a reliable forecast out of it. When you make a prediction, or your algorithms do, is it based on what it was, the conditions were like last year, or is it more to do with the past few days, or is it sort of more complicated than that? It's a combination of those two things. So one of the pieces of information that goes in for each sighting, we have what were the conditions like when that sighting was made. And so that's a major part of tuning the model, so that when we see those conditions again, it's more likely that our, our prediction will be higher. Um, and then in terms of, we use time of year as well as one of the variables, because a lot of the species are really seasonal. 
but that's not the only story. You know, as things get warmer, the seasonality changes, so we have to figure out ways to account for all that. And then there's the issue of how how far back in time do you go because because they're more like statistical responses, ticks might have responded to temperature differently 20 years ago than they do now as they expand their range. And so we're experimenting with how you weight data based on how old it is and giving the more recent data a stronger weighting. So yeah. That's basically how we account for that. But there's no perfect way to do it. It's not it's not going to be the same every year. It's not going to be the same with every species. And that's how machine learning can be really valuable because it can go, it can do this sort of real-time tuning process where it plays with all of those different dimensions and all those different aspects and figures out what's going to give you the most accurate forecast. We still don't know a lot about these ecology equations, right? Yeah, and so because we don't know those equations, we have to rely much more heavily on people sending us reports because the model could go off course in just a day or two. But if people keep feeding those reports in, the learning algorithms can sort of self-correct as that information comes in. And then the other piece of data that's really valuable are these geospatial uh, data layers like what we get from satellites or even just you know, maps of population density or, um, or weather forecast data like winds and rain and that sort of thing is really useful when we're making our forecast. And so it's like blending all this data together, then making a forecast, and then figuring out how to get the forecast back to people who are sending me those reports. So I've been doing ecosystem forecasting for about 10 years. We started with right whales about 10 years ago. Uh, that wasn't based on citizen reports, though we could, you know, we could do that with whale watches and things like that. I started using citizen reports for the forecasts in 2015, just after we started get the, getting the big jellyfish outbreaks in coastal Maine. And then from there, it started to, to spread into some of these other species like deer ticks and, uh, and so on. I still get uh, hundreds, hundreds over the usually over the course of the summer, yeah. a little bit in the spring and That's fall. But awesome. Yeah, it's it's hundreds every year. Um, I it I still think it could grow to thousands yeah. or tens of thousands um, once people start using the forecast. There's definitely st- still some tweaks that I need to do to get them to be a bit more reliable. But that's you know that's what I'm writing proposals to do. Right. I need to need to get it funded and keep the program going. And I'm trying a lot of different ways. I use social media. I have a website where people can send in reports and see the forecast. And, um, you know, I do the audio uh, ecocast kind of thing. I'm not sure that's really taken off yet, but I think it could. You know, there could totally be an ecocast on the nightly news, just like there is a weather forecast. And that's what I would love to see. And that, in turn, would get more people sending me uh, sightings of ticks or jellyfish or whatever it is or you know I wish you would dear Nick I wish you would start a forecast for Japanese beetles because they're a big problem in my garden and if they are for enough people we could launch it just like that just like all of the other forecasts and so having that uh, more and more interaction with the people who are using the forecast and who are distributed all over the state and all over the country who are interacting with nature and seeing things and sending that information back it's kind of like I think of it as like the earth as seen through the eyes of people who live on it. It's not a perfect view of the earth. You know, if you wanted to, there is no perfect view, but the normal scientist wants to get a really regular survey following certain protocols. That's one view of the earth or of the earth's ecosystem. Another view is from the people who are there interacting with it, living within it. And that has 
unique information that it can provide to us as well. So if someone wants to give you information about what they're seeing, what would you what would you say are like the pieces of information that you'd want? Yeah, so my chance to make my plug. So yes. if it's something that I'm already forecasting like ticks or jellyfish, you can what I'm looking for is the when you saw it and where you saw it basically and what you saw. And we have websites set up, tick.bigelow.org and jellyfish.bigelow.org, where you can actually just enter that information into a web form. It's pretty easy. You can use your zip code, or if, you're, you know, if you know your latitude and longitude, most people don't know that offhand, but if you do, you can put that in. But zip code is fine, too. Um, that's where you enter that information. If you really want to, you could email me. I still get a few hundred email reports every year which I have to go through and geolocate and so on, but I do that. And I, and I try to collect stuff through social media too, so I have a Twitter handle, at Seascape Science, and people could tweet stuff to me. Uh, if it's a new species that I'm not forecasting, I would say email me. And uh, if, if it's, say, Japanese beetles or whatever, uh, something that you've seen that's changing, just email me, and that's the way to start. And maybe it will get enough momentum to turn into a forecast, and maybe not, but at least... At least starting that conversation is the first step. When you make a prediction, or your algorithms do, is it based on what it was the conditions were like last year, or is it more to do with the past few days, or is it sort of more complicated than that? It's a combination of those two things. So one of the pieces of information that goes in for each sighting, we have what were the conditions like when that sighting was made. And so that's a major part of tuning the model, so that when we see those conditions again, it's more likely that our, our prediction will be higher. Um, and then in terms of, we use time of year as well as one of the variables, because a lot of the species are really seasonal. Uh, but that's not the only story. You know, As things get warmer, the seasonality changes, so we have to figure out ways to account for all that. And then there's the issue of how, how far back in time do you go, because because they're more like statistical responses, ticks might have responded to temperature differently 20 years ago than they do now as they expand their range. And so we're experimenting with how you weight data based on how old it is and giving the more recent data a stronger weighting. So yeah. That's basically how we account for that. But there's no perfect way to do it. It's not, it's not going to be the same every year. It's not going to be the same with every species. And that's how machine learning can be really valuable because it can go, it can do this sort of real-time tuning process where it plays with all of those different dimensions and all those different aspects and figures out what's going to give you the most accurate forecast on this particular week or month or whatever. And then so if you make a forecast and then you get another sighting that happened during your forecast period, does your algorithm, you know, then compare and adapt? Is that sort of yeah, yeah, ideally, we don't have this quite working yet, but ideally, I'd like to have it actually live. So if you put in a, a report, then within the hour, you can see how it changes the map. Yeah. That's what I'd like, so that it's really interactive. And um, yeah, and hopefully that would encourage people to say, you know, this has a really high, or say a really low likelihood of finding ticks, but I just found one on me. Put the data in, and you can see how the map changes based on that. Yeah. And so with the maps that people would see, the forecasts, how would you recommend that people interpret them? Like if they go on now and they're like, okay, this is the forecast for the weekend, 
how should they use that information? Yeah, so our, this is another way where these forecasts are different from weather forecasts. We're actually forecasting the likelihood of a human tick encounter, not the abundance of ticks themselves, because that's what we're getting reports of, human tick encounters. And so part of that is what the ticks are doing, and part of it is what the humans are doing. I guess that's, that kind of couches how people might respond. It's, um, we're not guaranteeing that you are or aren't going to encounter a tick because it depends on lo a lot on what you do yourself do. And that's really hard for us to predict. Um, but I would say, like, for the, for the ticks, for example, you know, it's a good way of, of uh, reminding yourself when you need to do these daily tick checks. I check, check my kids every night before bed during these really heavy times of year. Uh, and that's what I personally what I use it for. I don't I don't actually stay out of the woods on the high tick days because I think that would be just a shame. But I do use it to as a reminder for when to be really careful or when to tuck my pants into my socks and those kinds of things. Um, yeah, I that, I think that's yeah just okay. a just a heightened caution about things and right. maybe we'll be forecasting things that people want to see as well, like the alewife runs, for example. Right. Um, and so then your response might be like, let's go see the alewives this week instead of next week or that type of thing. So, right. I forgot depends. about that. Not all, not all forecasting would be negative necessarily. Right. Right. And the moose car encounter one, you know, if you want to see a moose, that would also be informative. You just might want to drive more carefully as you, when you're going through the really high likelihood encounter areas, but moose car encounters or interactions can be positive as long as there's not an actual collision. So after that, Nick told me what he thought was so great about having citizens help with these forecasts. Yeah. So one of the things that I think is awesome about uh, engaging citizens in these forecasts is that it can potentially bring ecology into people's everyday lives. And there's a lot of reasons why that's great at least if you, if you love the natural world, um, it's great because it engages more people. Um, it also helps people better observe and understand what's going on around them so that they know when things are changing, they might have a better sense of why they're changing. Um, they might be able to better prepare for change. And in general, I also think um, optimistically that a, a more science-aware and science-savvy public will lead to a more science-aware and science-savvy government, which is kind of a problem right now. But I think the way to, to address that, or at least one way, is, is through, through people more so than through government channels. Because yeah. at least for now, I still believe that things work that way. <laughs> <laughs> And a lot of industries do this sort of thing, actually. Yeah. Like there are agricultural, industry-based agriculture forecasts that are ecosystem forecasts in a similar way to what I'm doing. They don't really use citizen reports, but they use a lot of the same ideas. And they're not distributed to citizens either. They're really an industry-specific thing. You know, the weather is public-based, right? Like yep. that's your audience is the public. And everyone talks about the weather, yeah. right? And part of, part of that is because... Well, we all experience it, but all the information about it is to the public, right? Yeah, right. And so the same could be done for ecosystems. I think so. Yeah. Weather, weather forecasting globally, I recently read, is a $300 billion industry. Wow. 
And so if you if you imagine that ecosystem forecasting were were 1% of that, that's a $3 billion industry. So there's also a huge potential for uh, ec- economic growth around these ideas. You know, information is really valuable. Information about the natural world is really valuable in a lot of different ways. So there's a money side to it as well. It's hard for me to see how I personally would make a lot of money doing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, but somebody could, could use these ideas in a similar way. I mean, maybe maybe AccuWeather or someone like that could could take some of these ideas and make some serious money off of it. And they would need scientists who are doing ecosystem forecasting to help inform the development of those programs, not necessarily the business model. Maybe the business model, I don't know. But, yeah. uh, but, I, but I do think that, that there's, a, there's that potential there as well. So if you had any suggestions for someone who's like, okay, I want to start keeping a good record of the natural world around me, you know, and they'll send in tick reports or whatever. Like, should you think like keeping a notebook and just writing your observations are good or I don't know, any suggestions for? I would say a few things. I think for one, yeah, send me your tick sightings or whatever sightings you see. If you're interested in monitoring things yourself, I think a notebook is a great way to do it. A spreadsheet's even better with the date. Like uh, like my dad, for example, counts Japanese beetles and just writes it in a notebook. Um, and I asked him this summer to put it into a spreadsheet. And so now I have like five years or something of Japanese beetle counts in his garden and thinking about ways to to get other people interested and maybe turn that into a forecast. But now that's real data that I can use. Uh, so a spreadsheet, and you could put notes in a spreadsheet. That's fine too. The notes are valuable information too. But the other thing I would say is to look for citizen science projects that are already initiated that you could get involved with. And there are, there are projects all over the state. There's coastal ones, there's inland ones. Uh, we have some at Bigelow, there's some at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute, there's some that are run through the University of Maine. Uh, just There's just all kinds of them. And look around locally and see what you can find, and that's a great way to, to get plugged in too. Well, the other thing that I think is useful about, the other way that I think about the forecast is as an adaptation tool. Mm-hmm. So if you think about climate change and all the problems that are spinning off from climate change, there are two things that we need to do. One of them is mitigation, which is basically amounts to reduction of CO2 emissions and greenhouse gas emissions. That needs to happen. But even if we shut off all of our emissions today, we're still going to see a significant amount of warming over the next something like 20 or 30 years until the system equilibrates again. And during that time, we're going to need to be doing the other thing, which is adaptation. And I think of forecasting as fitting really well as an adaptation tool. It helps people understand what's going on around them and it helps them think about what's going to happen in the future, either the near term or maybe the slightly longer term. And then they can think about what they need to do to adapt. Thank you, Nick, for agreeing to be interviewed for the Strictly Fisher Up Science Radio Hour. It was totally fun. Thanks for having me.